Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Despite the devastating impact of the Great Recession of around a dozen years ago, the political and economic influence of the financial sector has been growing. Measures aimed at reducing risks in the financial system are being rolled back, and past mistakes are arguably being repeated. Anastasia Nesivatalova and Ronen Palan, researchers in economics and, and political economics at City University London, argue that much of the behavior of the financial sector that led to the Great Depression in the early 1930s was repeated in the lead-up to the crisis of 2008 and continues little change today. They examine systemic problems in the financial system in their new book, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance, which is published by Public Affairs, and I'm very pleased that it brings Anastasia Nez- Nezvitalova and Ronen Palan to our show now. Welcome. Good morning. Good, Good evening. Morning. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, well, it's it's a- afternoon here in New York, and Good I guess, afternoon. and it's evening in London, right? Absolutely, yes. Anastasia, you opened your book with a legal case, a lawsuit brought by Libya against Goldman Sachs in 2016. Why did Libya sue Goldman Sachs? Because Libya lost all its uh, money um, that it had in that particular fund uh, due to the transactions that Goldman Sachs advised it to have. What had Uh, Goldman Sachs done? What did they claim had been done to wrong their country? Um, well, it, it's complex. It involves financial instruments and derivatives, but essentially, um, uh, Goldman, the leading global bank, advised the Libyan um, uh, authority to invest them in a particular set of instruments, which eventually would lose all the funds that Libya had stored for the future. The instruments worked in such a way as to, to the disadvantage of the Libyan um, financial authority. Why did uh, Goldman's internal documents... Uh, what did they reveal about how the company viewed its client? Well, it's it's really in the book. I'm I'm happy to read out, but well, there is nothing we'll do the short version here because we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's worth reading that some of the presentations about um, the prospective transactions and the great prospects that these instruments would bring to the Libyan authority were done to a, a person uh, in the middle of a desert with camels. Uh, you know, Goldman. So they had contempt for their client. Well, well, basically, they came to the desert, you know, did a fantastic presentation to people who really don't really understand finance very well. But it seems that the instruments they chose were not really the best instruments for, for the Libyan government. They lost money. And anybody who would understand finance would probably know that they would lose money on this particular transaction. But, of course, it generated a lot of bonuses to Goldman Sachs employees. Goldman's internal documents described Libyan clients as having zero level of financial sophistication. (laughs) Uh, So this is the polite way of uh, um, saying what you just said. And yet, Ronan, a judge in London ruled against Libya. On what grounds? Uh, and, 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 uh, and to add to that, Goldman is based in the United States. Libya is in North Africa. Why would a British judge even have a say in the matter? Well, the case went to London uh, and was, uh, was uh, of course, uh, taken in London courts, which, of course, are one of the central courts in the world. Many of those cases are taking place either in London or in Wall Street, mostly in London. In this case, 
what was interesting about the judge is, of course, the Libyan government showed not only that, in a sense, they were fooled by Goldman Sachs, but, in fact, Goldman Sachs paid for, say, additional type of entertainment, prostitutes, and um, a lot of that, a lot of that kind of stuff. They essentially, in, it was a form of a bribe to these officials, the Libyan officials, so they will invest uh, through Goldman Sachs, who made money out of it. What was interesting about the judge, the judge said, well, anything that uh, you show me is not really unusual in terms of <laughs> business. Um, you know, these judges in London are very familiar with financial businesses and how deals are taking place. That, I thought, was the most interesting aspect of this particular judgment. He said, this is not unusual. And hence, he actually adjudicated in favor of Goldman Sachs. That's the way, in a sense, he said, he didn't say it explicitly, but in a sense, he said, this is the way the business of finance is conducted. Corruptly. Um, correct, yes, essentially. Haven't That's there it. been a number of cases in financial of financial institutions winning against countries like uh, the hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer's win against Argentina. Yes, sir. Yes, that, we go back to, you mean the Argentine default in yes. 2000. Uh, yes, that, that is true. Um, and uh, it's interesting that you bring up a hedge fund. So in Argentinian case, it was institutions specializing in particular nature of debt and assets. So the hedge funds were aggressively targeting particular type of, of property and the particular political context where the country was vulnerable. In this particular case, um, uh, the, the, the Libyan Investment Authority and Goldman and many other examples we use in the book, and many other examples we don't use in the book, um, they relate to a normal financial cycle where things are okay, where... Uh, investments are expanding, banks are welcome, and uh, clients are trusting them with their funds. So that leads us to uh, how the conduct of Goldman Sachs illustrates the sabotage and hidden nature of finance of your book's title. Yes, that's right. I mean, um, we, we know of many of those cases, and the book documents some of the, some of the more comical cases. For example, the Royal Bank of Scotland, one of the largest banks in the world at that time. The largest bank in the world. Was the largest in 2007. Yes. Uh, upgraded many clients. When the clients died, upgraded them to premier accounts. <laughs> After they died. <laughs> upgraded that basically got additional bonuses. Uh, there are many cases like these going around. And Wells Fargo mm. invented more than a million customers uh, for bonuses purposes. We have all sorts of cases of banks basically destroying each other. Um, it's all particularly with, the, with regard to how banks treated their customers. There's one particular quote that we heard from people in finance that goes back to apparently one of the last meetings of Lehman Brothers. And that particular meeting, the chair or somebody presented a particular case, and the lawyer, a senior lawyer, raised their hand and said, uh, don't we have a conflict of interest in this matter? And apparently the, chance, the chair said, no conflict, no interest. I, we are making money where there is conflict of interest. Now, the question that we ask, okay, okay, so we all know about these endless stories about finance. The question we ask is, does it mean that there are specific people who are rogue, gone bad, bad apples in finance, or is it something more systematic going on? And that's the purpose of our book. 
We actually argue that this is something systematic and there's a reason for that. These are not simply bad people or immoral people or rogue individuals. It's to do with the way you make money, not only in finance, but in business generally. So it doesn't matter whether it's Goldman Sachs or Lehman Brothers or Royal Bank of Scotland or Lloyd's or Wells Fargo. But since the financial crisis and Great Recession, there's been a lot of analysis of the failures that occurred in the financial sector. Uh, has that had any impact at all? Or, or are you suggesting a different account? Um, it's a complex question. Of course, such a massive wave of regulations and new standards, um, and we don't deny that there's been um, a massive re reform of international uh, regulatory architecture and national regulatory architecture. It, couldn't, it, it could not have not produced a result. Um, one of the effects was uh, to, in fact, strengthen the regulated banking system. So they are now much more... Uh, our banks are much more prepared for a type of a crisis of 2008, for example. They are better regulated on liquidity. They're closely monitored. They have higher compliance costs. Um, they have to fill a lot of detail on their regular transactions, and some of them even have to watch out for bonuses. They cannot openly reward themselves money that would not be justified, as they did before 2009. Um, but what we're saying is that it's not really, first of all, it's not enough because the financial system is not just about the banks. Banks comprise only half of the global financial system. Um, there is a massive industry, growing industry of wealth management. There is shadow banking system. There is fund management. There is insurance companies. You know, finance is a vast universe, and we all are part of it. Um, at the same time, in none of these uh, reforms, regulations, or, or new rules, um, had the question been asked about sabotage, about why is it that financial institutions routinely and quite systematically have to try to control the market and, and sabotage the role of the state, the customer, and even each other when working together. So since, uh, since so this is an international thing, we talked about banks from the United States, from Britain, uh, Switzerland, Israel, India, Deutsche Bank, uh, is it still suspect in, in part because of its dealings with Russia and the Trump organization? And, it, and is it a matter of, uh, of not uh, different countries being able to control things, but the banks and global banking uh, living by rules of their own? In our view, the issue is different. In our view, this is, this is a global phenomenon, not because of American banks or Indian banks or whoever we name here. The fundamental issue in finance is the fundamental issues that business do face. And, the, and that is that in a competitive market, it's very difficult to make money. That's our point. In fact, that's, that's kind of the mainstream view in economics. Uh, that's the reason why many economists are in favor of free markets. The freer the market, the more competitive the market, the more the market is supposed to allocate resources more efficiently to us, the consumers. And that means, and that kind of, that's inevitably, that the producers, the service providers, are not going to make a lot of money. It is very difficult to make money in finance in competitive markets, and that's true in the United States, it's true in Europe, true worldwide. 
And when it's so difficult to make money in a competitive market, it's inevitable almost that people will try to find ways of changing the market, controlling the market, ensuring that they make more profit than what the market, if they let simply the market operate freely, will deliver. So does, does this mean that the finance industry is not the engine of innovation or creative disruption that some claim it is? It is. Of course it is. Um, it, it's highly innovative, and that's what makes it a dynamic, but also unstable. And also it gives it power that not everybody can control. It's extremely difficult to uh, to control any new innovation, in generally, but in finance specifically. And um, that's, that's, how fi- that's how financial system has moved from crisis to crisis. But what I want to emphasize is that uh, our book is, of course, full of examples of the banks you mentioned and, and some other institutions or people. But it's really not about the individuals. Our story is about just how widespread or systemic the phenomenon is. So we should not be surprised by what happened with Wells Fargo? Uh, uh, no, you shouldn't be. Uh, didn't, uh, doesn't it remain one of the, the largest banks despite the, uh, the scandal? Uh, did sabotage in the final analysis pay off for them? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question that we didn't ask. We didn't ask ourselves, and I think it's wonderful to, I mean, we have to think about it, whether it pay, pays off or not. Coming back to your point about innovation, some innovation can, be, uh, can mean a lot of things. We normally think about technological innovation, okay? So innovation means, say, a new smartphone or a better, and so on and so forth. And we tend to assume that when we talk about innovation in finance, it's about something along the same line. A new technology that will make things either cheaper, faster, better, and so on and so forth. But what we find that most innovation in finance are nothing to do about that. They really to do with one form or another of subverting regulation or changing rules in such a way, and not paying taxation, and so on and so forth. So what most of innovation in finance has to do with that. It's about regulation. It's not about new technologies as such. Although some innovation do introduce new technologies or new organization finance. Yeah, of course. For example, the, the current cycle of innovation in uh, what is called fintech is a prime example of a fusion uh, between technology and financial instruments that really carve out a different space for essentially unregulated uh, money-making. Now, despite uh, sizable fines, how big a hit did Wells Fargo take after its questionable practices were revealed? During the the housing bubble that led to the financial crisis, didn't many banks make subprime loans that they should have expected to fail? Or or did they expect them to fail? Um, These are two different questions because um, the scandal that we cover about Wells Fargo happened um, after this. So it, it, it wasn't connected to subprime loans. It was connected to uh, the bank making up more than a million customers, yeah. basically fake customers. Or taking or putting people on uh, credit cards that they hadn't asked exactly. for. People were invented, exactly. A whole set of uh, accessories were invented for essentially a group of fake clients so that some employees could either charge uh, permission fees or claim bonuses or promotions. Um, 
that's just one of the stories we picked up in research. We're not saying it's uh, exceptional, and that's why we said you shouldn't be surprised by what Wells Fargo did. Uh, to what extent, um, it's not entire, It's not directly connected to subprime loans. Subprime uh, lending was um, did clearly involve a lot of fraud and corruption, but it was quite. Uh, it was both more complex in its uh, execution, more widespread in the industry, and ultimately more systemic in its effect, i.e., in implosion. Subprime crisis essentially. It, it translated a very American crisis into an international banking fiasco, mm. simply because loans were uh, securitized, simply because connections were international, uh, markets were global, uh, insurance didn't really work to the extent it should have. I'm speaking with Anastasia Nezvetailova and Ronen Palan. Their book, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York. The, the popular image of sabotage is of a worker throwing a wooden shoe into machinery, a destructive act. But historically, didn't the French term mean something else? As far as I know, well, the, the French term sabot was basically a wooden shoe, as you yeah. say. Sabot, yeah. Sabot, it came from sabot. And yes, it was, uh, it was when people at that time, workers, were actually trying to destroy machinery. The term was used quite, um, quite prevalently, actually in the United States, not so much in France. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, when the, what today we call the robber barons emerged, the large industrial um, configurations run by J.P. Morgans and the like, they were really sabotaging each other physically. So you had in the United States, you had new railway companies uh, having their own armies and in the night sending an, an army to destroy the railway line of somebody else, of the competitors. They were seriously sabotaging each other physically. Okay? But the term we discovered was used then more widely in the United States in the late 19th century to, to describe a whole type of activities in which either workers or actually managers themselves began to sabotage each other for various purposes, basically to make money. Gaming the system? It became systematic. I don't know if the system. It became systematic in a sense that it was used quite widely in the United States to describe certain type of capitalism that was, you know, the wild wealth type of capitalism in which different individuals, managers, or workers would simply destroy each other as a way of making money. Um, so it was very common in that state. It, was, it has been forgotten. In fact, one of the nice things for us as two, in a sense, European academics is to discover the wealth and the richness of this tradition of thought in America of the late 19th century, 20th century, which we think they got it right, these American thinkers. I'm talking about Thornton Veblen, about John R. Commons, and the like. They were very popular in the United States, but they have been forgotten, or largely forgotten. Does the, uh, the framework of laws and economic institutions lay the groundwork for sabotage? Or are governments and perhaps also consumers part of the machinery that makes sabotage possible? I think it was the other way around in many ways. The um, emergence of modern states, United States, the federal states, much stronger than before in the late 19th century, 
and it included also regulation like antitrust law and Sherman law and the like, were partly in response to this behavior, this Wild West, West type of behavior of businesses at the time. So United, more than America, owes, owes a lot to the thinkers of that time who understood that without regulation, without regulation of business, business will simply destroy, destroys market, doesn't work for the consumers, and destroys each other. But I want to add that in a contemporary setting, um, this would not work without, you know, customers being there and not being dependent on the financial system, which we totally are from birth to death. We are part of it, and that's why the power of financial institutions, their implosion or their reach or our relationship with financial innovations is so profound and also so strategically important. Don't you argue that much of the sabotage now occurring is kind of innocent? Innocent? You mean there's no intent to Yeah. It? Because um, uh, sabotage suggests intent. Yes, that's right. So the question of intent, of course, in a sense, it's we don't want to be too legalistic, but um, you have to go into somebody's head to find out whether they have intention. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we don't know how, to what extent, the individuals were understood exactly what they are doing, or to what extent not. But we know that the effect of what they were doing was effectively to sabotage either clients sabotage competitors, or in many cases, sabotage the government, by which we mean they make sure that the government essentially participated by taking some of their risks. Um, so you say and, the three targets of sabotage are clients, competing firms, and, and states. Doesn't yes. that pretty much cover all the players in an economy? Correct. And the market. Uh, and, and the market the, itself. Yeah. The ultimate aim is the, is the market. So you'll find that many... Many people in business will say, oh, we are very much pro-market. Uh, business is pro-market. We are in favor of competition. But if they are in favor of competition, then we don't have to think about finance. Why, if you go to a restaurant and you ask for Pepsi, they say, oh, no, we, you can only get Coca-Cola here. Okay? Essentially, Coca-Cola and Pepsi are sabotaging each other. They allow restaurants or other vendors to use only their, their product. Now, if you ask Coca-Cola executive or Pepsi executive, both of them will say, will profess that they love competition, they love the market, the market is the best thing. But in reality, on the ground, they'll try to make sure that when you buy, you can only buy their product and not the competitor. And that's true about all sorts of business. They will always try to sabotage somebody else. And that's true of finance as well. That's what we say. Isn't competition supposed to be adversarial in, in some sense? Yes, it's supposed to be adversarial, but it's supposed to be, at least the way most of our friends, the economists think, within the rules, okay? So you compete with each other by improving your product, by um, being more compet- more efficient, and so on and so forth, not by restricting comp- restricting your competitor in one way or another, and certainly not by taking advantage of your clients. What we argue is that Although competition is adversarial, that's that's what actually most business will try to do. They will try to sabotage. They will not simply play by the rule. Going back to your question just now, uh, the the problem with um, intent or, if you want, criminality is that 
a lot of what goes on in the financial system is not really legal. It's within the letter, but if you want, not the spirit of the law. And some of the scandals become scandals because precisely because what had been happening, for example, with Goldman Sachs in Libya was entirely within the rules, the framework of the rules allowed um, or really prescribed to the financial system. Bribes are allowed within the system because uh, you, well, no, you described was bribe. Well, bribes. offering prostitutes and the such, uh, that sounds like bribes. Well, this particular judge in London believes that this is the way business is done. That's what he basically is telling us. He, if you ask, if you ask this judge, are you in favor of bribes? Uh, is, you know, he will say no. But he believes that this kind of behavior is within reason. That's the way business operates. And it's just one of the episodes that made it into the book. If you read the memoirs of ex-financiers or bankers, you will get more juicy stories about (laughs) what they did in their offices or with their clients. You write that economic theory tells us that it's next to impossible to make money in competitive markets. Is Is that what's known as the efficient market hypothesis? Yes. The efficient market hypothesis is one derivation of that broad theory, okay? The broad theory uh, of uh, um, basically in a competitive market, very difficult to make money. So how then companies make money? Economic theory suggests there are two ways of making money. One is through monopoly. If you monopolize the market, then you can make money, you make excess profit, or by creating what they call temporary disequilibria, that is, you innovate, innovate and you say iPhone, and for a while you are the first, essentially you've got a monopoly in the sales of that particular new technology, and you get money. And the second one, of course, something that we would like to encourage, because we would like companies to innovate. Efficient market theory basically suggests that financial markets are so competitive and information diffuse so fast that nobody can beat the market. And the one implication of efficient market theory is that although we have a lot of people who claim they understand the market and they would like to invest money, your money, because they understand better the market and they can generate more profit, efficient market theory says they cannot. All right? The market always is ahead of every individual. That's what the theory suggests. Now, a leading architect of the efficient market hypothesis hypothesis is Eugene yep. Fama, an economist at the yep. University of Chicago. Is he in the same school of thought as Milton Freeman and others who um, some have often derisively called the Chicago boys? I'm not sure if I'm uh, Yeah, I think it's more nuanced than that. Um, I think Fama has uh, his own place in specifically in the study of financial markets and, and uh, financial behavior, uh, whereas Others, of course, they also analyze financial system, but they each have their own, if you want, stream of scholarship and broad economic um, theory of the 20th century. Broadly, they believe in markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent they interpret efficiency, competition, the nuances of context and relationship with the state does differ. Well, when Pinochet took over in Chile, uh, he instituted some of Milton Friedman's ideas brought in. Uh, Friedman's people. Did did, uh, that uh, make the Chilean economy any better? Not that I know of. 
<laughs> not most of the Chilean that I met. Uh, no. I for sure can say that the same set of ideas in the 90s Russia impoverished the state and its people for about a decade. Well, now it's all changed because of pretty much Putin and uh, a small group of people uh, have uh, pushed out the, the original oligarchs who took advantage, and now they pretty much control the economy. It's different than the United States, but uh, is it more efficient because only a small group are, are running the whole thing? No, it's impossible to say, but also to, to argue the counterfactual, the only historical reference is the Soviet history for the USSR and the trauma of the 90s where essentially everything was stolen and eventually controlled by six or eight people. Mm. And it's not, it's not entirely true that they've been pushed out. They've been redistributed in different groups. Well, Khodorkovsky um, is, is in exile. Uh, uh, the, yeah. What was his name? Berish, uh, Berishnikov? Berishnikov is no longer he, He's dead us. because uh, he may have committed suicide. He may not have. I think if I can come into it, I think you're asking a very interesting question, and that's where we think we are located. We, we normally, um, the kind of ideological position people take, either I'm pro-business and I'm pro-market. Or you can be, or other people, supposed to be on the left, they're anti-business and anti-market. We take kind of an unusual position, which again takes us back to these American figures of the early 20th century, late 19th century. We think market, or free market, in principle is a good thing, at least to the, com to, to the consumer, if there is such a thing as free market. Um, but in fact, business, we don't think business is thriving in free market. We think business, because of the problem of profitability that you, are, you yourself uh, pointed out, business will always try, or many businesses will try to find a way of sub ultimately sabotaging the market, uh, circumventing the market, finding a way of not being subject to the discipline of the market. And coming back to Fama, he was very much pro-market, and I think, but I don't think he really basically took his own ideas to the logical conclusion. He followed in many ways the work of Paul Samuelson, another Nobel Prize winner. And Samuelson said very clearly, I know that there are people who consider themselves specialists in finance, they call themselves asset managers or brokers and they're investors, and it makes sense. It seems that they should know better than, anybody, than other people, and they should be able to make money for you if you invest them. I know it should be in theory, but in reality, mm -hmm. I couldn't find any of those. So, again, those people who are so pro-market, and, and I think they are right in that sense, they, they have to ask themselves then what business will do in that, that market that they believe is so efficient. How much of a dent did the financial crisis of 2008 make in, in banking profits and, and the profits of financial institutions? For a short while, it was enormous, oh, rather big, um, but I think they've recovered. I think they're recovering slowly, slowly, okay? But yes, it had a huge impact on, on the profitability, clearly. Some people claimed that, of course, their profitability before the crisis was simply illusionary. Uh, but illusionary profitability can turn into real bonuses hmm. to individuals. That's good enough for them. 
In fact, losses can turn into bonuses for individuals, as they did for most banks that received TARP money in the rescue package from U.S. states. Losing money can be profitable. Yes. Correct. Yes. Individuals. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, the, you're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Are you confused about the economy? Well, have no fear. I'm going to explain the American economy right now. The dollar, just think of it like a promise from the government, but the value of the dollar has to be there to be relevant. The value of the dollar comes from China and Iran when they put the cash reserves in a U.S. dollar plan. They bought treasury bonds from the Federal Reserve. We say we owe you extra money because you gave us some of yours. That's a big part of the national debt. All the interest that we haven't paid in China quite yet. And a hundred other countries because we're such a good investment. The whole world gives us money. We say, hey, we'll pay you interest. This is how money is created from air. Bank bet our federal budget money isn't really there. It's an IOU. Remember, dollars are a promise. When you borrow from a bank, it's not from other depositors. The money for your loan gets created on the spot. Then they put it in your name, gamble on your life and body. But if you lose your job, then you were a bad bet. Yeah, who would have thought that <laughs> economics and sabotage would have uh, inspired a rapper? <laughs> but uh, that was pretty good. Uh, we're speaking with Anastasia uh, Nesvetilova and Ronen Palan about their book, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance, which is published by Public Affairs. But we'd like to take a few moments uh, to talk about finances of another sort, uh, the finances that affect WBAI. And, and joining and, and uh, Anastasia and Ronan, uh, we'll be right back to you, okay? Sure. Okay, well, anyway, Jesse Lent, who is my executive producer, joins me now. Uh, Jesse... Uh, finances are a major issue at this station because we have uh, remained, uh, we have, we've cut down on our ability to compete by not taking money from foundations or from advertisers. We just go to our listeners and say, show your support because you believe in our product. Right. Uh, hello, Leonard. Hello, Reggie. Hi, everyone. Economics are a big part of what we grapple with here at WBAI as any uh, listener-supported radio station uh, does. But as Leonard just said, you know, compared to even a lot of public radio stations, we do have a particularly tough go because we, there's no corporate underwriting, as we're always saying. There's no uh, big donors. There's no uh, billionaires kind of handing us uh, sacks of cash behind the scenes here. And unlike England, where our guests live, uh, we don't have—in uh, England, you have to pay a, uh, a fee— uh, whether you listen to the BBC or watch BBC on television or not, we uh, we don't get any money from the government, or we get very little money from the government. Right, I, I, Reggie. Do you know? I don't believe we get any money from the government, do we? Uh, we used to get money from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, but that no longer. Uh, that's in hiatus right now. Right there, yes. you go. So with. Our CPB money in, in hiatus, uh, we would ask that our listeners step up and help us fund this crazy experiment in community radio, WBAI, 60 years and running. We, we are, if we have anything to say about it, it's going to be at least another 60 years. And the best way to do that is by going right now to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, then the number two, WBAI.org. 
org or by calling uh, 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602 or the website give to wbaiorg And lettered as I've been privileged to do several times through this uh, fund drive so far, uh, as you mentioned, we're now in the second week, uh, I come bearing gifts, <laughs> which is to say that anyone who contributes uh, in uh, uh, in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, who, who becomes specifically a BAI buddy, those are listeners who make a contribution of $10 a month or more every month. Sustaining members. Sustaining members. It's deducted from your debit card or your credit card, however you want to do it. If you sign up today to become one of those BAI buddies, we would be happy to send you the book that Leonard has been discuss- discussing today, uh, Sabotage, and, uh, and and we think that this would just be a great mm-hmm. book for you to get your hands on. And we thank Public Affairs for making it possible. Now, uh, the uh, we've been talking about competition, uh, and our show is not like the competition. We actually devote a full hour to a complicated subject, uh, a subject that other people might shy away from, like the one we're discussing today, but we think is really important. And we assume that that's one of the reasons that you listen. Well, if you want us to continue doing this and uh, and to search for all sorts of other topics that uh, aren't normally discussed, uh, we really hope that you will become a member right now whether you become a sustaining member or whether and and receive a copy of the book or whether you just uh, become a, a member by giving us a, whatever amount that you're comfortable with the important thing is to be part of this system and to help WBAI survive into the future 5166203602 or go to our website give to wbai.org give the number 2 wbai.org and we hope you'll do it in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. You know, and I just think uh, one last, you know, just to make one last point before I let you get back to this fascinating conversation. I just think today's show is such an illustration of the point you were just making, Leonard. The idea that a show like ours is really the only place where you can give a deep analysis of the economic system the kind of time and depth that it deserves. Uh, this is not a quick, uh, you know, 10, 20 minute, even f- five minute segment a lot of times on mainstream news outlets where they say, hey, so why did you write the book? And uh, what do you hope will change? And OK, well, thank you very much for coming. And that's it. We do our best to be the alternative to that, to people that don't just want to look smart or sound smart, but actually want to think about deeper concepts and acquire a knowledge that is a real knowledge, not some kind of superfluous talking pointer or soundbite. And that's why we speak to people like our guest today, Anastasia Nesvitailova and and Ronan Palan, who are researchers in economics and political economics at City University London, the authors of the book under discussion, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance from Public Affairs. And should we get back to this conversation? Because there's so much that we have to talk about. I, I know better than to try to stand in the way of that. But I will again. say just one last time, the only way that we can keep doing that, uh, bringing you these deep dives, maybe not the most 
economically sound business model, but one that we believe in all the less is with your support by calling right now, 516-620-3602, or by going to our website, give to wbai.org. Everyone who becomes a sustaining member for $10 or more a month gets a free copy of the book under discussion today uh, and uh, sabotage. And um, But we hope Anyone will feel welcome to donate any amount. It all helps, and it keeps this show coming to you five days a week from 1 to 2 p.m. And uh, as we always say, thank you for your support. And uh, Anastasia, let's get back to this. Uh, Many of us are familiar with the gotchas of credit cards, loans, balance requirements like fees and penalties. Are those among the ways financial institutions sabotage individual consumers? It's an instrument, yes. Because what you said is interesting that you are aware, uh, but clearly you have this fantastic show which lasts for an hour to enlighten and educate the public. But not everybody has the hour to spare, and not everybody would understand the small print. Um, And they give you a lot of small print on these things, and I— I'm I'm willing to bet that 99.9% of all of us don't read all of that small print before we hit the I agree button. Exactly. And sometimes now with a kind of more virtual environment for getting uh, the loan, you don't even have the choice of not agreeing. You just have to sign in order to get access to the site or to the card. Um, And with the expansion of finance into more and more areas uh, of life, really, into insurance, into our daily shopping, into uh, health care, into residential care, into care generally for, for the elderly, Uh, the opportunities for that are are growing um, vastly. Now, Ronan, how do firms sabotage one another? Some small business people who have tried to compete with Amazon talk about strip mining. For example, Amazon copied a free tool offered by a company called Elastic and then offered it as a paid service. Amazon even used the same name for the product, uh, Elasticsearch. Is that sabotage? Yes, it is. To my mind, one of the main techniques of sabotaging among firms, not only in finance, but more broadly, is the use of taxation, okay? So, essentially, when we talk about firms like Amazon or Apple, these are, we tend to think of them as one unit because there's a CEO and so on and so forth, but they compose, they tend, they tend to be composed of two 300, sometimes more than a 1,000 corporate entities. Each one of them has separate legal entities located in different, many of them located in different countries. If you can, 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 can visualize this, it's like an ecology, ecology located all over the world. And what we find with many of these companies is now that by using these different corporate entities located in different countries, the clever one can effectively arbitrate rules of one country against the other. Yeah. So you end up situation, for example, I think Facebook. Facebook, a company that one or two people heard about, managed to pay 5,000 pounds, that's $6,000 in tax three years ago, to the UK. All right? That's the only profit they made. 5,000 pounds? That's nothing. Yes. Exactly. That's... Um, that's uh, well, about six thousand dollars in U.S. money. Yes, most of your listeners will be delighted to pay that sort of tax. <laughs> okay, but that's what Facebook pa- 
trade in one of the largest markets in the world, and that's the UK. And how they've done so? They've done so by basically transferring funds between different entities located different places in the world using Luxembourg, Ireland, and so on and so forth. Um, the same with Starbucks. So if you think about Starbucks, I think they paid no tax, I think, uh, three years ago in the UK by doing the same technique. But your coffee shop down the road, they cannot use that, okay? The coffee shop that's set up by Joe and his wife or his daughter, they, they pay tax. They pay full tax um, on their income. So they find themselves in competing with Starbucks, and they are losing. Not because necessarily the coffee is less good or the service is less good. Maybe it's even better. But because they cannot compete on price with companies who can play this game. And that's, again, coming back to finance, we find that the banking industry really perfected these techniques of tax avoidance, either for themselves or for their clients. So is offshoring increasing? Offshoring, offshoring, I'm not sure it's increasing, okay? It's fairly large, as we know. And, and then sure there's outsourcing of, outsourcing of labor. Does that serve as a way to labor, sabotage labor, especially organized uh, labor? Yes. That's right. That was, in a, sense, it's a, in a sense, it was a form of sabotage of labor, of course. If you don't, uh, if, you know, if, you're, if your unions are not going to comply, we are going to move elsewhere. It's a way of forcing them and ultimately undermining them. I guess something that is very alive now in U.S. political discussion, okay, the effect of that. Uh, but that's what we mean by sabotage. Um, what, that's the use of, of tax or advanced and sophisticated tax uh, avoidance techniques by large firms, financial firms or non-financial is a form of sabotage of the state. Why do we say that? Because the same firms, of course, enjoy the benefits of a very sophisticated infrastructure. Okay? Facebook, unfortunately, is going to, not going to make a lot of money, say, in Chad, where the infrastructure is not strong. They're going to make money in the United States, in places like Britain or France. So they are benefiting from the infrastructure available, but they are not contributing by paying tax to that. So they are sabotaging, and they are sabotaging their competitors, which are smaller businesses, to the extent that today, small businesses, by which I mean from three, four employees to, say, 100 or even 1,000, find it extremely difficult to survive um, in the U.S. or in Europe. They find, it, they find the conditions on which they operate very, very difficult. They have been sabotaged. Now, what about on a national level? Won't Brexit have a powerful sabotaging impact on the UK? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure the term sabotage is the right term, although we, could, uh, you know, we should think about it and um, consider this particular notion. But economically, it will have, it's already having quite a negative impact on the UK, and it will have for a long time to come. Now, don't countries sabotage one another? For example, hasn't the United States been sabotaging Iran financially for years? Um, are, are, are sanctions an effective weapon? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can think of these particular terms as used also in geopolitics. Uh, countries are sabotaging each other in a very unique... But, you know, um, these are obvious cases. There are less obvious cases by which countries sabotage each other using international organizations. 
So, for example, to give you an example, if you have two minutes, um, Argentina decided that they, they prefer not to be not not to have investment from offshore financial centers and had a list of countries where investment from those countries will be subject to additional scrutiny. One of those countries was Panama. Panama then took Argentina to the court of the World Trade Organization, okay, arguing that this is a form of discrimination. discrimination. And Argentina removed Panama from the list as a result. So Panama used the World Trade Organization rules as a form of sabotaging what Argentina wanted, and that is to reduce the amount of tax avoidance and evasion in Argentina. Now, it also plays a role in uh, diplomatic relations. For example, uh, when President Trump was elected, um, he promised to cut back on sanctions against Russia that had been imposed because of its invasion of Ukraine. Now, I'm assuming that that is part of the, 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 the kind of international political trade-off that uh, is common uh, between countries, but would that be uh, an example of sabotage? I think that uh, the notion of sabotage of countries basically using power against each other to achieve their goals is not unusual in international politics, so we are familiar with that. But we think of this concept as belonging to the world of politics. Okay? In politics, people undermine each other, people find a way of sabotaging each other. So I don't think anybody will be surprised to hear that countries do to each other or that politicians or parties do to each other. Although, but in economics, we tend to think that they don't. For some reason, we tend to think that economics works according to some rules, some gentleman. It's a gentlemanic club in which Although it's very competitive, although it's very harsh, people play by the rules. We don't think people play by the rules. Well, several members of... businesses want to control the rules or, if possible, to avoid them. Well, several members of the, of the Trump administration have come from the financial sector, Steve Mnuchin and Wilbur Ross, for example, and haven't some nicknamed Goldman Sachs government Sachs. Is there a similar revolving door between government and the financial sector in Britain or Germany or some other countries? Germany is an exception. It's almost impossible to, um, to have that revolving dome. It's considered to be dishonorary. <laughs> Uh, you, you divide, you choose your career in one way or another, but you never really uh, revolve. So it's one of the European cases of exception. Now, in so the UK, you do get some repetition, but it, there is a club of people who control both um, politics and, and uh, the city. I think there is more competence broadly in the civil service and the city. And there is a rotating... There are some rotating figures, but I think most, in, in the most pronounced way, uh, you're right. It's not just the Trump administration. It's the historical pattern in the U.S. That's uh, what I think it's Paul Krugman. He calls it oligarchy. Now, I was so really surprised when I saw the Standard & Poor's reported on the world's 100 largest banks, and the 10 largest have combined assets that are significantly greater than the GDP of the United States. They may be too big to fail, but um, are they also too big to al allow to exist in their in their current form? Yes, and that's why that that's where their power lies. It's uh, one of the, if you want, big strategic mistakes of post two thousand nine reform, 
is to facilitate the banks for the, to become even bigger than they were. The fourth, four largest banks uh, are in China, and China has many banks in the top 100, uh, has more than any that the United States does. How much clout does that give China in global finance, and how independent of the Chinese government are China's big banks? I don't think they're independent. Uh, I think the, Ch yeah, the Chinese, the Chinese bank, banking system is very different to the American one or the European or British one. And that requires a whole set of expertise in China and knowledge about how they work. It's a different system altogether. But coming back to this too big to fail, uh, the chief economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, he calculates that before the financial crisis, about 50% of the profits of banks derived from being too big to fail. Why is that? Because the market assumed that those banks, the too big to fail, too big, will be rescued by governments, and hence those banks were given kind of discounts on interest. They had cheaper loans or cheaper loans in the wholesale financial markets. He calculates that 50% of their profit. Now, that basically wow. means that this, precisely, those too-big-to-fail banks effectively had a partner who, who paid for some of the costs. Or the partner was the government. Not that the government wanted that. Government didn't like it. And there was a lively debate in the United States in the 90s and the early 2000s about that. I was a partner but, as well. Isn't every person who pays taxes a partner in this? You were a partner in that. And that means that the Bank of, of America, Chase Manhattan and the like, paid less interest. So essentially, the profit was individualized, but the risk they have taken was socialized to the whole country. That's what they've done. Oh, That's fantastic I, form of sabotage, isn't it? And, and on that very happy note, I unfortunately have to end <laughs> this conversation. It's been fascinating. There's a lot more I wanted to talk to you about because there's a lot of re interesting stuff in your book, the book called Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance from Public Affairs. My great thanks to Anastasia Nesvetalova and Ronen Palan for having been our guests today. Thank you for having us over. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Also our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows and leave comments on any of those sites. We will be preempted tomorrow for special WBAI programming, but we hope you'll join us on Wednesday when former Republican strategist Rick Wilson will discuss his book, Running Against the Devil, about how the Democrats can defeat Donald Trump in the 2020 election. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.